Anyway, we've got a, a terrific uh, panel. We have uh, Nick Timmins, uh, one of our senior fellows, one of our rock stars, in fact, um, who is uh, here and at the, the King's Fund and is also visiting professor at King's College and, uh, and the LSE as well. And his uh, um, award-winning book, The Five Giants, A Biography of the Welfare State, which he's been modest enough not to bring with him, um, but we have many copies of, um, has recently been revised and updated. And he's going to talk to us um, at some length about where we are in this. Delighted to have two people to respond to him who could not possibly be better, uh, also authors of excellent recent books. Julian Legrand is Professor of Social Policy at the LSE and uh, one of uh, Tony Blair's former senior advisors and has written, have you got a copy? Yes, which, which we're allowed to ra raise up. Motivation, Agency and Public Policy of Knights and Knaves, Pawns and Queens, which he will talk to us a bit about. And David Willits, Lord Willits, who um, is uh, Executive Chairman of the Resolution Foundation and um, also uh, visiting professor at King's. We have a, a high proportion of them, of their people tonight, uh, and was uh, MP, of course, for Haven't from 92 to 2015, if that's right. And he has a book, very <laughs> recent. Uh, uh, this is not a book launch. This is a, this is a debate, uh, but they've, they've all decided to bring them. Um, a university education, which came out in November. Um, all right, Nick, you're going to kick off for us and talk about where we are, a kind of sweep of the history yep. of where we got to, okay. and then we can all argue about it. Indeed, Perfect. that's great. That's great. Well, it's really good of you to be here. It's a foul evening, so I'm very grateful. And this event is absolutely not about promoting three books, though, of course, we'd all be delighted <laughs> if you uh, actually bought any or all of them. Um, and equally, um, uh, I hope you won't feel, after I've spoken for no more than 20 minutes, hopefully a bit less, that I've not sold you a pup. Uh, the reason you might think that is that I've no great thesis to profound, nor any proposition or recommendation to make. Instead, I merely have an observation, the one that came, kind of fell out of writing the final chapter as I updated The Five Giants. It's sort of intended to provoke a debate, which might provide some answers, which I don't have. And the observation is simply the title of the event, Do We Still Know How to Manage Public Services, if, that is, we ever did. And by we, I mean quite simply the taxpayer, as represented by governments of various colours over the years. Now, when it comes to public services, there have been many attempts to codify or define the way we've tried to run them. And the one that probably most instantly springs to mind when it comes to the public sector is command and control, which will doubtless will come back to. But there are many others. For example, trust, with a capital T, which you might define as letting the professionals get on with it. And then there's voice, which covers a considerable canvas of mechanisms, which include the ability to elect both local and national politicians, and then lobby and petition them. But it's a definition that goes much wider, including, for example, parental and patient voice locally, whether that's parent governors or the assorted and seemingly ever-changing mechanisms the NHS has used from community health councils to health watch. <coughs> More recently, of course, and perhaps increasingly importantly, <coughs> there's social media, which provides another at times loud and extremely dissonant voice, which government at all levels is still working out how to handle. So there's trust and there's voice, and then there's inspection. Now, for some of the public services, this stretches way back into the 19th century. Offset and the current police inspectorate can trace their roots back to 1839 and 1856, respectively, although it must be said that the intensity and the nature of these inspections has changed somewhat over the decades. And then we have more market-oriented approaches, all of them in practice, to use the jargon, quasi-markets, 
because none of them are remotely pure markets when it comes to public services. And quasi-markets, of course, involve both choice and competition, although even here, both can take various forms. So choice runs from the right to express a preference that a public service hopes to honour. For example, parental choice of school, whereas David Willits once remarked, parents can express a preference, but in practice, not all of them can choose. And at the other extreme, choice with a genuine voucher, for example, comes with the ability to take your publicly funded money elsewhere, the aim being to ensure the suppliers of public services, whether public, private or voluntary, compete for and respond to the taxpayers or the patients or the pupils' pound. But even this monetary competition can take various forms. It can include price competition, aiming for the lowest price, consistent, one hopes, with quality. Or as in parts of the NHS and in schools through formula funding, it can involve competition for business at a fixed price. For example, the NHS tariff or price list, the hope being there that the competition will be focused on quality. And then it must be said there are various other forms and many other forms of competition that do not directly involve money. Simply the professional competition, whether in schools, health, prisons or the police, and in many other parts of the public sector, simply not to be just good at your job, but to be potentially recognised as amongst the best at your job. And that applies at least as much to individuals, and probably more so, than it does to organisations. And of course, with the more genuine quasi-markets come regulation, which always includes inspection, but often goes well beyond that. So if that's a description, and there are others available, of the various ways we might seek to run public services, what has happened and where are we? So the next bit of this is an incredibly truncated and that highly superficial and deeply selective history of the post-Second World War attempts at managing public services. Simply to make the point, there seems no longer to be a dominant theme, where at times in the past there clearly has been. So immediately after the Second World War, the dominant themes might best be described as a mixture of central government paternalism and trust, trust in the professionals. Paternalism is most famously caught in that 1938 quote of Douglas Jay's that the gentlemen in Whitehall know best, although what he actually said was that in the case of nutrition and health, just as in the case of education, a gentleman in Whitehall really does know better what is good for the people than the people know themselves. So government kind of set the frameworks, new education settlement in Butler's Act, a new NHS, a new social security settlement, but much of the implementation was left to the professionals and the practitioners. So to take just three examples, in the case of health, the doctors, the consultants in particular, were given a deal that guaranteed them a much steadier income, but were largely left free to decide precisely what it was the NHS would provide. And this was the sort of trust model at its purest. They were presumed, to use Julian's phrase, to be knights. Teachers were somewhat less free, being subject to a degree of control by local government or the churches and the church-sponsored schools, but it was broadly assumed that they were the ones who knew best about teaching children. The curriculum while it came to be shaped by an examination system that slowly became more standardised, was famously described by ministers as the secret garden, into which central government was not allowed. Indeed, Ronald Gould, the Secretary of the National Union of Teachers in 1954, declared that one of the great safeguards of democracy was, and I quote, the existence of a quarter of a million teachers who are free to decide what should be taught and how it should be taught. And even in the National Assistance Board, which is a kind of a forerunner of today's DWP, and in what was therefore inevitably a centrally run service, there was much trust in the practitioners. Much of the means-tested assistance it dispensed relied on home visits by the, its officers, who had very considerable discretion 
toward kind of toward extras, so to speak, new cookers or bedding or whatever, to those they deem to be in need. There was a lot of trust. But disillusion with these approaches set in, and health ministers became frustrated at their policy pronouncements. Their desire, for example, to shift resources into underserved parts of the NHS happened too slowly, or sometimes not at all, uh, in what at the time was an administered, not a managed NHS. Regional hospital boards and GPs still had huge discretion over what they actually did. Now, at the National Assistance Board, research showed that discretionary decisions of its staff produced widespread inconsistency, not just between local offices, but within them. And as teaching methods changed, child-centred teaching with tables and what looked to parents like play, replacing the serried rows of desks in primary schools with everyone facing the blackboard, parents ceased to recognise the schooling to which their children were subjected, and governments, with a somewhat struggling economy, became ever more interested in the utilitarian end of education, the production of a literate, numerous and employable younger generation. So in health, and this really is a truncated history, but in health you get the 1974 reorganisation of the NHS intended to produce some proper planning into the service, followed in the 1980s by the Griffiths Report on NHS Management. Now, in my view, in the view of many others, the Griffiths Report saved the NHS. It put a stop to the failed consensus management the 1974 reorganisation had introduced. But it is actually in this period, and not as myth has it, in, as, in, as myth has it in the days of Bevan's successes, that the NHS actually became increasingly subject to performance management and command and control from the centre. And the discretion of the National Assistant Board staff enjoyed was replaced by a rules-based social security system that solved one problem but produced another, which was rights of appeal to tribunals and much else, but also targets often unspoken and denied, but undoubtedly there, over meeting budgets and in time greater sanctioning of those seen to be abusing the system. Schools came to be seen as too dominated by the teaching unions acting in their own interests. And the turning point there must be Jim Callaghan's famous Ruskin College speech of 1976, in which he favoured a core curriculum with national standards, a guard against creativity, taking precedence over the three R's, and some method of monitoring performance against national standards. He added that we all know those who claim to defend standards, but in reality are seeking to defend old privileges and inequalities. And, of course, it was Callaghan's speech that became the agenda just over a decade later with Kenneth Baker's famous Gerbil, the great education reform bill. But it wasn't just politicians and governments thinking this way. For example, in this period, in health, we saw the start from within the medical profession of the evidence-based medicine movement. With health costs rising, Dr Archie Cochrane in 1972, in what's clearly one of the origins of NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, declared that in future, decisions over which treatments patients receive would have to be based around the evidence on their cost-effectiveness, not just on custom, tradition and hunch, and the opinion of senior consultants. In other words, old models of trust were declining in favour of standardisation. And over the 70s and 80s, this happened across swathes of the public sector. To take another example, as the politics of local and central government diverged, there was continuance of the steady erosion of the role of local government. And for public spending reasons, but also for political ones, rate capping arrived. And as a result, local government became increasingly reliant on central government grant just reducing the power of voice locally. Now, none of this history, of course, is entirely tidy. There are always countercurrents. So, for example, local authorities got more responsibility for social care, even as they were increasingly to lose their influence over schooling. 
But the overall trend was greater centralization, a bit more command and control. And there were the growing worries about producer capture in public services, kind of across the political spectrum. Too often they were organized for the convenience of staff rather than the benefit of the receiver, and a feeling that it needs to be made more responsive. And indeed, centralization and command and control also came to feel somewhat sclerotic. So the history of this moves into the new public management. Neatly summed up by Osborne and Glaber's proposition in reinventing government, the government should be involved in steering, not rowing. Defining what should be done rather than trying to do it all itself. Which led to the rise of both quasi-markets and outsourcing. And in the UK, one of the great defining moments for this was reached in 1988, the year that David here was later to dub Conservatives Annus Mirabilis, when what might be loosely dubbed a properly Thatcherite approach to health, education and social services emerged. Because it was in that year that the following either arrived or enunciated, which was the purchase of provider split in the NHS, grant maintaining schools and formula funding for pupils, and councils actually getting more responsibility for social and community care, but on condition they became the arrangers and purchasers of care services, not the monopolistic providers. While in local government it was required, required that a whole range of services would be put out to compulsory competitive tender. And over time, these approaches became in many ways the key instruments across public policy. Private prisons, for example, private providers supplying welfare to work and probation services, not to mention the private finance initiative, with PFI involving service projects, not just capital projects, in defence, transport and many other places. And that, with some pauses and lacunae down the years, has been the dominant narrative for the better part of 30 years. An erosion of trust, a diminution of voice, a rise in the faith in choice and competition and greater reliance on the private sector to deliver public services. But of course, alongside that came a dramatic rise in inspection and regulation. Not least, because it turned out that when public services were more directly managed or even, more public, even merely publicly administered, ministers could rely on the very often erroneous assumption that either they or their civil servants knew what was going on out there. Once quasi-markets were in operation, with providers operating either at arm's length from government or in the private sector, both ministers and the public needed inspectors and regulators to tell them what was happening. So there's been an explosion in inspection and regulation, the last Labour government, for example, creating, getting on for a dozen new inspectorates of one sort or another, some spanning both the public and private sectors, and with the coalition government strengthening the role of some of them, for example, the Care Quality Commission. But the inspectors and regulators and the roles often combined, are decidedly less publicly accountable than the ministers in Parliament were when services more directly run. And I suspect Julian might have something to say something about that. Now, it's crucially important to stress that none of these means of managing public services has ever been singular or pure. They frequently run alongside each other. I mean, the NHS in the mid-2000s, for example, was subjected to an at times bewildering mix of competition and choice, of targets and terror, of inspection and of performance management, i.e. command and control, over both its finances and its wider performance. But, and here is in a sense my key point, I'm getting to the end, most notably since 2010, we seem to have lost faith in choice and competition and in quasi-markets as the dominant narrative for how to manage public services. Time's limited to just a few examples. Andrew Lanz's famous NHS reorganisation was widely seen at the time as the jumping-off point for a hugely increased competition and choice in the NHS and vastly greater use of the private sector. Now, there has been a relatively small increase in the latter, 
but competition and choice have fallen out of the NHS lexicon, and it turns out that Lansley's Act was the high watermark of the faith in that in the NHS. Uh, the direction of travel now is all about integration, a move towards accountable care organisations and global budgets for population health. In schools, Gove's free schools were in part conceived as deliberate extra competition for existing state schools and academies. But that budget has been raided and shrunk to keep existing schools going. The relatively new regional school commissioners creating an embryonic regional structure, ironically, in schooling, just as Andrew Lansley was abolishing it entirely in health, were initially charged with promoting new free schools and academies, but soon came also to be charged with encouraging collaboration, which is not the same thing as encouraging competition. In welfare to work, private providers now have only a very, very minor role, and the private finance initiative was initially halted, then revived on a much smaller scale with some minor amendments. The PFI, in my view, having worked well in a few areas while presenting many problems in many others, and this session, by the way, was conceived ahead of the collapse of Carillion. Against that, one area where additional faith... Against that, or however, the one area where... Not the one, but certainly one area where additional faith is still being placed in competition and choice is, oddly enough, in higher education, which is perhaps the one area of public policy that has not so far been subjected to it, where new degree awarding bodies are being encouraged and a new regulator aims to allow students to exercise more customer power. That kind of feels like an exception to what otherwise is a general trend. Under the coalition government, partly under the influence of the Liberal Democrats, there was a revival of faith in localism or a form of voice, an interest the Labour government had begun to express in its later days as it worried about command and control at the same time as Gordon Brown's government began to lose faith in quasi-markets. So we do have more directly elected mayors, and we have Devo Mank in health and a couple of paler versions of it elsewhere, but too often, for council tax, the social fund, the independent living fund, and later with the social care precept, this looked less like a faith in local government, in voice or localism, rather than central government handing over some of the knottiest and most wicked problems to local government, complete with a budget cut, in order to wash its central hands clean of them. And so this observer, it felt as though that was driven at least as much by austerity as by any new faith in localism. And that, of course, may provide part of the clue to the loss of faith in quasi-markets. Maybe it's that they work at times of expansion, where new providers can enter and challenge, but they struggle in times of austerity and shrinking real budgets. In part because it turns out that it's very hard, if not impossible, to let a public service, whether a school or a hospital, for example, kind of close down overnight, as happens in the private sector, purely because it is financially bust. In a few places, there's been some revival in trust, although in a somewhat modified form. So, again, in the health service, for example, hospital doctors are now being given much better, more sophisticated information about both their clinical and their financial performance in the hope of harnessing professional pride and peer pressure to improve services. But that, of course, in the way of these things, also involves harnessing a non-economic form of competition. So, in a sense, that's my observation. After the better part of 30 years of having quasi-markets as the dominant narrative, we no longer have one. The idea appears to be running out of road, but is not being replaced by any other dominant, thing, dominant narrative or ways of doing things. Now, I'm not necessarily saying this is a bad thing, as Dan Corrie, who headed the policy unit in Gordon Brown's day, once observed as the coalition government produced a paper attempting to explain coherently what it was up to. The truth is that you do things differently in different sectors for different reasons, 
are usually good ones. Not all these ideas work equally well everywhere. But it does raise a question to which I don't know the answer. Namely, are we any nearer finding the right horses for the relevant courses? So thank you. <laughs> Debate. <laughs> Nick, thanks very much indeed for that sweep of history. You've, uh, you've very carefully arrived at a point where you, um, you don't tell us what you think of, uh, of this, and, and uh, we'll come back to that. Um, but, uh, Julian, let me go to you, and uh, you'll yes. say some... Um, the answer is yes to, to the original question about whether... Can we, did we still... Uh, uh, sorry. Um, do we know how to manage uh, public services? The answer is yes, we do. Um, and um, the Blair-Brown government got it right, um, on which I played a small role, a very small role, uh, but I have an interest. Um, when the NHS, uh, when uh, the Blair-Brown government left in 2010, um, it, uh, the NHS was meeting all its targets. It was financially solvent. The, um, the, uh, <coughs> we, um, meeting all targets... And they were uh, reduced. The hospital, sorry, um, uh, the post-operative mortality rates in hospitals were also falling, um, and patient level uh, satisfaction was highest uh, than uh, it had ever been and has ever been since. Um, it was basically a success. Um, and why? What, what happened? Well, uh, basically, we um, the government had used two of uh, Nick's various models to achieve that. One was uh, what one might call the mistrust model, which was essentially command and control, uh, or better known, I think, as targets and terror. Um, and the other was uh, the quasi-market role of choice and competition. Um, and the combination of the two had the results that I talked about. And incidentally, the results were not due to were, uh, weren't only due to increases in money, uh, in resources, Scotland and Wales were having um, a higher amount of money per head than, uh, than England at the time, uh, and they did significantly worse than England. Um, um, what we'd done, or what that government, that government had done, was built on, um, actually, the achievements of the Thatcher major government, um, in which David played a much larger role, uh, uh, introducing the quasi-markets of choice and competition. Um, in, across a, a variety of areas. What would ha what ha what's happened since? Well, since we've seen a relaxation of targets and terror, and we, as, you, as uh, Nick's pointed out, we've seen a, a reduction in the emphasis on choice and competition. There still is competition, I think, in some areas, in health particularly, in the uh, area of, um, of uh, community care or community health. Um, but uh, on the whole, in, in the rest of the health service, as you say, it is diminishing. Um, in education, I, I don't think it's right to say, incidentally, we don't have choice in education. We, people don't always get their first choice, which doesn't mean to say that people don't have choices. But it's clearly functioning in a highly imperfect way uh, with um, large numbers of people, uh, largish numbers of people not getting their first preference and so on. Um, the consequence of this, well, the consequence is exactly what um, people like me or, uh, and others who advocated um, choice and competition um, would have predicted, which is uh, massive increases in waiting lists in the health service, um, <coughs> slipping down in the PISA tables in education. Um, uh, has it been replaced by anything else? 
Uh, do we have another model, which is Nick's sort of final question? Well, unfortunately, I think we do, actually. What has been replaced by, what the, what the combination of targets and terror and choice of competition has been replaced by, has been an incredibly heavy-handed regulation, which is also a form of command and control. But the difference is that it's, uh, there are several commanders. Um, the, the Department of Health is still trying to exercise command and control. Um, then we've got NHS England um, also in the health uh, arena. And of course, we've got various regulators, CQC, uh, NHS improvement and so on. Um, I did talk to one, uh, the head of one specialist hospital who said that uh, uh, he was answerable to 63 different regulators. Not quite where he got the 63 number from, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure I could substantiate that. But uh, anyway, he was answerable in an enormous number of different directions, often giving him different messages. And of course then you get a mess, and of course then you get a disaster. Um, Ofsted, um, uh, unbelievably heavy-handed regulator uh, in education. Um, the amount of um, the terror that is induced um, by schools, or indeed children's services departments, I've observed, uh, by the prospect of an Ofsted inspection, um, in no way, it seems to me, seriously outweighs any benefits that you get from the, from the regulation. So we have, we, we have got a model of, of, of uh, running public services in operation at the moment. It's a regulatory model, uh, and um, it's a highly unsatisfactory way, and it's certainly no way to run a public service. I'm going to go straight on to David, except I just want to ask you, whether you give any credit to the demographic, demographic shifts that we all know about, the aging of the population in your know, description of the deterioration of the health service, or is it just, in your view, change of model? Um, obviously, the population is aging, but it isn't aging that fast, frankly. Um, the, the, sort of the, 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 the switch from over a period of three or four years from uh, a highly successful health service to, uh, to one that, that appears to be on the brink of of, of, of collapse uh, cannot be put down just simply to, to the um, to uh, the aging of the population. Nor, may I say, could it be really put down to cost pressures. I mean, there, there's been a pay freeze uh, over much of that time. The cost pressures are not that enormous. There are some technological cost pressures, yeah, yeah. but I think to argue that it's a result of all that um, is quite misleading. David. Well, thank you very much for this invitation to join the panel. Nick's new edition of his book, Five Giants, is out. Uh, I don't know if Julian is planning a new edition of his. Uh, and I've got a new book out, but it's not a book tour, so we're, that's all clear. Um, it's, it's more a kind of ageing rock band reassembling, because we used to have these conversations 30 years ago. I used to sit on panels with Julian and Nick and suddenly find we're all back um, trying to make sense of what's happened since. We've become a, maybe a sort of oral history unit instead. Uh, and I defer to Nick's uh, experience as, as the, our great historian of the welfare state um, as to where we've got to. I mean, it's, it proves incredibly topical because of Carillion. Uh, and I think there is a wider lesson in Carillion, which is that there are limits to how much risk uh, governments and the public sector really can hand on to private sector bodies. And in the real world of politics and accountability, when public spending is involved, you find you can't actually shed uh, fundamental risks. And I think that is part of a wider picture where there has been a loss of momentum behind, perhaps the right word to use in this context, behind privatisation, uh, PPI, 
that type of model. So there isn't, it's not the kind of cutting edge that it was 20 or 30 years ago. However, I don't think there has been a return to the nightly environment that was so well described in Julian's book. Um, I, I always thought really that the, it, was a bit, it was rather flattering in the public service to say that they were regarded as, as knights. I thought it was more there was a treasury settlement across a range of public services where the, the deal, the implicit deal was provided you comply with public expansion controls at the macro level and administer them and work within them, we will in turn give you micro discretion in what you do within the financial settlement. I think that was the, that was in reality the deal in the NHS and elsewhere. Um, and we are in a society as a whole where there is less trust. I don't see any prospect in the near future of return to trust. I'll touch on that a bit later. Um, I think in many ways we're in a society where one of the most significant cultural changes in the last 20 or 30 years is now we're all knaves. Regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of public or private sector, we will be treated and have to work on the basis that the wider environment, including the political classes and certainly the media, will assume that uh, we are knaves. And I quote in my book a brilliant comment from David Hare, who David Hare observed the following. If there were a ministry of fruit picking, the only way an ambitious Tory minister could advance his career would be by launching a blistering attack on fruit pickers. And I think that is the logic of the environment within which politicians work, and it's also the logic of the environment within which the media function. Uh, so it's certainly not a return to a world in which we're dealing with Nights and I can. I actually thought what Julian said a moment ago was very interesting. It is increasingly a regulatory regime working on the basis that be you in the public sector or the private sector, uh, you can't be trusted. Uh, I, the question that I thought the question on the exam paper this evening though was what next? Well, this, if, is, this is very much where I want to take right. it. So, th so thank right. you for this. So let me, in my <laughs> remarks, let me speculate on what next. So where are we heading? And I have to, let me now confess, I have become, especially given my time as Minister for Science, a bit of a technophile. And I think if we want to look at where public services are changing, it's the technological revolution, particularly the digital revolution, which provides the key. Um, and I would observe in Whitehall, and I'd give Jeremy Haywood quite a bit of the credit for this, just thinking during my time of involvement in Whitehall in different ways, we have shifted from the... The assumption used to be that technology was fixed for the time horizon of any actual real policy decision that you were taking. And I would say the assumption is now shifting to a very different one, that technological advance is sufficiently rapid and sufficiently relevant that it's likely to be part of the solution to any acute policy dilemma that you face. And in particular, most relevant from the digital revolution, the massive amount of new data that becomes available once you have more and more online interactions within public services or with government. And in its simplest, that transforms policymaking. We used to think, we used to pride ourselves in Britain on the quality of our social science and our social science data. 
Uh, I don't know how many social mobility discussions I've gone to, which are based entirely on an analysis of the 1958 and 1970 cohorts, for each of whom I think there was about 16 to 20,000 participants. When I go to listen to a talk by Raj Chetty on social mobility in America, he's dealing with millions of data points. He's getting close to the point when he can say, when the principal in that community college left and a new principal came in, over the following 30 years, the earnings of the people who left that college fell by 5% in a way that can be linked to a change in the educational performance when there was that change in the management. He can say that the following, the following community colleges are providing more of America's biochemists or more of their... Uh, uh, more of their lawyers than anyone else. He can say what their earnings were going to be. He can track you from the poverty of your background into which state you're likely nevertheless to achieve uh, a high income and which ones you want. In other words, he can bring together very large data sets and analyse them in a way that we ought to be able to do in Britain. Indeed, when I was a minister, I brought in a, created an administrative data network that I thought was going to make this possible. We have so far eluded us. So the first thing you get is a much more sophisticated analysis of what is happening to users of public services when you really are able to harness big data. But I think you get more than that. You get the potential through frequent online interactions to create communities and trust. You create communities of users who are able to get in touch with each other Look at some of the work that David Halpin, partly, uh, I think partly from the experience of his own child, David Halpin did in the way in which online communities of parents with a child suffering from the same condition were able to create. Uh, and it is possible, and I am going to go out on a limb here, that the experience of frequent interaction with some service providers itself can increase trust. I have quite a high level of trust of Spotify. In fact, my only frustration with Spotify is I wish they understood me a bit better and they got their recommendations even better. But my interactions with Spotify, which is for me just an organisation and a database that's tracking what I, the music I turn on to, are entirely favourable. I, when Spotify now recommends to me that I should listen to some new track that's out, I listen to it. I think Spotify understands me very well, and I would trust Spotify. I think, the, the, I think the potential for the creation of trust through these type of repeated interactions, and we know from the original Axelrod work, cooperation evolves through frequent interaction, is quite promising. I think that the, then you can imagine that the lively debate in the digital community is where does value come from? One, and there are two groups. One group say value comes from very smart software, and I used to believe in that proposition. I've been converted by the experts to the belief that value really comes from owning very large data. Uh, lots of smart people can write software. You have to be a very special organization indeed to have the data. Google is ultimately collecting data. They now give away a lot of their software. It's the data that they really prize. And the British public services have potentially enormous amounts of data about us. Um, and the, some of it we know they've got, but they just can't organise coherently, like in the NHS. Others doesn't really exist now, but will in future. Think of an educational organisation delivering more and more of its education online that is able to use this data really to understand how its students are learning. If you're an LEA, if, you were, if you're a university, if you are properly harness, harvesting the data you actually are going to be able to possess in the next few years about the learning experiences of your students, it gives you an enormous potential both to find out how you can change the way they learn, find out what's working, what's not working, redesign what you do. Um, 
Now, what, imagine that you were trying, so I think the future of public services is, it is to generate uh, the large data sets, to manage them with such high ethical standards, and to create sufficient amounts of interaction between users and between users and providers as to generate trust, and to use these very large data sets as an asset that enables them to change the way that their services are delivered, to make connections between previously unconnected services or issues. Um, I think at that point, the question of exactly who is a public or a private provider will become less significant than who is trusted to comply with high standards of ethical codes about the uses to which data are put. You have to design regimes as to what can be done with your data, whether individual consent is needed for each individual use. Um, but I think the, the potential there is for, a, for the ability to rapidly change service provision, to observe where there are uh, problems, to transform the way services are delivered. I mean, if you look at social care, as a, so to end with the point I made that Whitehall is now working on the basis that technology advances rapidly, when you actually talk to the technologists about the social care challenge, little old ladies living on their own, it's possible for the, if you had a smarter meter than our smart meters are, you can observe, because there's a slight change in the current when people turn on an electrical device and it's different from turning on a washing machine, from turning on a kettle. It's possible to track that at approximately 9.30 each morning in that person's home they turn on the kettle. And if it's not been turned on by 10 o'clock, to think that there could be a problem. It's, per, it's possible, there's a fascinating American experiment where they've just created a voluntary community of people where every possible sensor is installed in the houses and from the smart carpets that register if someone has fallen through to the sensors that record where people are moving to. Um, you can imagine in other words, uh, so even before you get into the more physical things like devices to help you lift little old ladies in and out of bed, you start finding you have massive information flows that enable you to observe and understand what is happening to people and link them up to concerned fellow members of their community, an email community that gets a message if the kettle has not been turned on by 10 o'clock. So I personally think, um, so I am come here to confess that I have become a bit of a technophile, and I think what public services do with new technologies and very large, large amounts of data is going to be the next big thing. David, thanks very much indeed for taking us right to the, uh, the future. Um, I want to come back, though, to where... Julian brought us. Um, and Julian, you, you, um, I can't say you come off the fence. You weren't on the fence at all. You said, look, uh, you know, we, we got it right, and then um, it got worse um, under the government that followed. Uh, Nick, do you, um, would you agree with that? I mean, would you, would you come to well, any, ju any judgment about what has, uh, um, which, which episodes have been better or yeah, worse? Yeah. Well, I think, well, I mean, slightly unlike Julian, I mean, I think austerity has had a big impact on the choice of because I think it does. It turns out it's much harder to make it work when there's less money around. Um, we've slowly, very slowly, learning. A, you cannot transfer all risk to the private sector. You're always going to, you know, risk is risk, and sometimes it will turn out to be realised. And we're maybe slowly getting better at working out what you can transfer and what you can't. Maybe. 
So there'll be some of that still to come, hopefully managed a bit better. Um, I think maybe there, there, are, there are times when, I think welfare to work's really quite interesting because when that first came in, that mm. produced genuine innovation in the way the state helped people get into jobs. Uh, private sector was able to do things that the public sector wasn't and there was quite a big gain from that. And then it kind of froze and ran out of road and we got stuck with the problem that the private sector ended up creaming and parking the difficult cases and despite fiddling with the contract endlessly, couldn't get out of that. Mm. And we kind of wound it down. So, so there maybe there's a sort of cyclical thing mm. to these things. That you, tr you, you gain something and you learn something and then you give up on it and mm. maybe try it again later with something different. Mm. Um, I've always quite liked the sort of, this is not the sort of, I think there's a, there's a, there's a lot of mileage in harnessing professional pride. Um, and some of that comes from better data. So the, the stuff that's going on in the NHS at the moment of giving consultants what is actually the most sophisticated mm. data set they've ever had about their performance. You go and watch that happen and people sort of say, ah, yes. I mean, after the initial, mm. the data's crap stuff. Mm -hmm. People mm -hmm. do, you know, so you're actually getting the professionals rather than the managers to sort of press for the improvement <coughs> in the service because they can see where their performance is down. So I think there's some mileage in that too. Mm. So none of that's a dominant narrative, yeah. but it's using sure. the mix we've got in yeah. perhaps more sophisticated ways. Yeah. No, thanks. And it's something the Institute does a lot on uh, the public service markets, um, um, when they work, when they don't, when you can outsource, when you, when you can't, um, and, and so on, uh, even before Carillion, and we will keep on with that. Where do you think we are, though, on the politics of this, and the, even, even more the public mood? You talk about regulation, and whether do you feel that people have enough trust in regulation for it to have some life in it? Or are we really moving into an era where people are so impatient with the results that they're tempted to reject that model? Well, I think the trouble is that stories of spectacular failure trump stories of modest success. And it seems to me that many of the, many of the, the quasar markets have yielded modest success. I mean, not, not, not as much as people like me who advocate them um, would have hoped for, but nonetheless, modest success. But at the same time, we suddenly get these spectacular failures, the Carillion, obviously, but also the, the, the dreadful stories about Group 4 or, um, and the Olympics and, uh, and so on. Um, and there's no doubt, it seems to me, that that, has, uh, that that all engenders a shift of mood, a shift of political climate. Uh, and, and it is a shift certainly away from... Um, the uh, the simple uh, mayor, the, the the shareholder owned corporation mm. as a means of uh, providing public services we might I see a move towards non-profit forms of um, providing services I would like to see a move towards greater co the use of greater cooperatives mutuals mm. and so on um, and it may be that, that that would be the direction, but I must say the political climate at the moment is probably favouring a move straight back to state yeah. control. I mean, what we've I mean yeah. about the, yeah. the yeah. political yeah. climate bit, I mean, you know, the one bit that's kind of obvious is that, in a sense, the Blairite faith in choice and competition mm. turns out that the Blairites were an occupying force in the Labour Party rather than converters of the, the masses, you know, because you just watch from 
Miliband on, the Labour Party is now not in a position where it's interested in choice competition. I mean, what we're talking about, there's, there's been a 30-year experiment, if you like, in, in, in these markets, a lot of um, experiment with choice and competition, as you said, quite a lot of modest successes, um, and suddenly a public mood which might um, lead uh, politicians, governments, to jettison much of what has been done and learned, uh, even before we get to David's new technological world. David, where, where do you think the politics is going on this? Yeah, I think people are, are pretty uh, unhappy and dissatisfied and distrustful. Uh, the, and certainly the, the reality, and I can remember in Shadow Cabinet, and maybe it was, I think it probably was pretty fantastical at the time, but under, in the run-up to 2010, the idea behind Lans Andrew Lansley's reforms, which I don't think was quite actually how Nick Timmons put it, the real thought behind it was this wouldn't be the responsibility of ministers. The real thought was... We're going to set up this other body, and when there's a difficult question about closing a hospital or something, it's not going to be something for ministers. It's instead going to be for these people running this quango. They're going to be really responsible. And, and uh, Oliver Letwin and Andrew persuaded David that this was the <coughs> way forward. It was when you were spending public money, and it's something that clearly is of high political concern, it was... Uh, at best, highly optimistic to think that when there's some scandal in the NHS and um, you're being asked questions in Parliament, you say, well, it's nothing to do with me, it's this, it's this quango. So we've seen comprehensively that you can't escape ultimate political responsibility for publicly funded services, even if the agent delivering them is a private body. And that is clearly the case. And actually, yeah. to be honest, once the taxpayers' money is involved, yeah. you can understand why yeah. people yeah. have that accountability. And I think that lesson has got home. I think that if, if you replay to today's cabinet, the discussions in shadow cabinet 10 years ago, people would just be shocked by the naivety of some of the ideas. Yeah. Let's have some questions. Keep on talking if there are no go right here in the front. Hi, my name's Duncan. I work for a grant-making trust. Um, two questions. One is, all the conversation has been about national public services. You did touch on kind of false devolution, but actually the local state has often been... It gets a, gets a poor deal. It's often been more efficient, closer to people. Yes, it's had its failings, but better at moving money around and yet has been shafted the most by austerity. So any thoughts on that? The second thing is, kind of what's going wrong is... what. Isn't there a little bit about, and I hate, I would never normally use this phrase, sort of classic economics, that we move to a lot of oligopolies where in, in every field, so academies, originally it was about empowering professional head, head teachers to have pride, and now it's chains that are losing their diversity. In public services, you've got in drugs and alcohol four or five large big charities that swap contracts. If you look in um, all the, con the contracting out world, it's Circo, Carillion, or whoever, just swapping between them. So they're all lazy, they've all got big bid teams, there's no energy or excitement, and it's removed that you've either got big bid teams or you've got the terror of regulators. You've removed the professional pride of people who can actually see what this hospital needs, what this school needs, what this community needs, what this council needs to get on with the job. They're all trying to manage. The Welfare to Work program moved from good private and charitable providers to large prime contracting models that aren't actually based on what people need. So the local state and oligopolies. And we just need to break them all up and move to a much more localised system that genuinely empowers people who are close to the service user. 
Who wants to come back on that? So quickly to absolutely agree. I mean, I think that, um, and it's very interesting, the development of what I was referring to earlier, the public service mutuals, which are small groups of public sector employees who spin out of the public sector, form a cooperative of some kind, um, which could be um, a professional partnership, whatever, uh, and then provide public service and contract back. And the morale of those is very high. The quality of the service seems to be very high. We haven't got any good hard evidence yet, but there's a lot of anecdotal um, evidence. Um, and it, it, I must say, if we're thinking about the future, if it were possible to go down that particular route to a much greater extent, that's what I would like to see. Um, well, there's an example, um, um, unfortunately one that's been rolled back, but the, the classic one was um, uh, a, a group of social workers in Stoke um, who formed um, a cooperative um, and um, uh, contracted back with the, uh, with the local council. Um, and the result was, um, the, um, uh, I remember going visiting them on one occasion, the, uh, the children, the children, it was, social, it was um, children's services, not, not adult social care. Um, the children, they had a drop-in centre in, the, in, the, in their building. Um, and the children were making a video in praise of their social workers. It was absolutely inconceivable, the idea that you would have uh, um, uh, children in care doing that. Um, and then there have been a variety of other. There's um, MyCSP, which is running the civil service pension scheme. Um, and that's, a sort of, uh, that's an interesting one. That's a multiple stakeholder model. It's got, um, uh, it's got some government involvement. Uh, it's got some private sector, private equity um, uh, involvement, or rather I should say equity shareholding, and also employee shareholding. Um, so there are, and then there's a Woodland Trust. Um, it's a small group that are managing woodlands um, um, for the, I think, I'm not quite sure who they contract with, but they're contracting with a government agency to manage the woodlands. So it's across a, sort of a wide variety across, mostly I have to say in health and social care, but across all sectors. I, I mean, it's a nice idea. Just to, I'm sorry, just to sort of throw a bit of cold water over it. I mean, the, why, why, doesn't it, why doesn't it happen? It doesn't happen because the management of large numbers of small providers and the relationships with them is bloody complicated and time-consuming and expensive. Uh, yes, but, I mean, we had these arguments on welfare to work, and I, was, I saw exactly what you're describing in welfare to work, which were some interesting, imaginative, local charitable providers, and we'd got a national budget on welfare to work, um, and there was no way that the Department for Work and Pensions was going to have hold contracts with 5,000 different local providers. So actually, oddly enough, the argument for these big intermediaries that you were understandably objecting to was they would be the contract holders that would in turn enable small providers to come in. When you've got reductions in civil service, reductions over, I mean, in my own particular area, in... I don't know if there are researchers here. Um, you used to be able to apply for small grants from the different research councils. And the Arts and Humanities Research Council, if you wanted to go take a year off and study the archives of some Spanish king in Seville, you would apply for £20,000 and do it. 
There is no way any public body is now going to have the staff necessary to assess whether you should be paid £20,000. What you have to do is say, I would like to set up a Spanish history unit with a five-year programme of research into the performance of different Spanish kings, and I need £5 million for that. Please, can I have it? That's the only way to get the money when all you ever wanted to do was to go to Seville and read the archives. So, and that was because we cut the staff in the AHRC, and there was nobody in the public sector who was ever going to take the responsibility of handing out £10,000. So I just observed it close up in my own particular neck of the woods. So what we did was we actually, just down the road, we handed over a bit more money to the British Academy for them to do it. But we ha- in other words, we needed an intermediary. You were not going to get the public sector dealing with lots of small organisations. They just, in today's Whitehall, they find it, they're under such pressure, yeah, they haven't but, got... But, but the, to go back to the welfare to work example, if the theory was that they would be the intermediary yeah. that would harness all yeah. the small local charities, what they actually yeah. did was squeeze them out. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, I do you want to come back on that? Well, I think, uh, I agree with your question. The question is, you were asking about why performance is stagnated. The issue is the intermediaries are not up to the job. They're large project managers and they're oligopolies that just swap them between them. Sometimes they just change the polo shirts around. They don't really have staff loyalty. They don't have to bring innovation. They're stifling. They're sitting on it. They're all looking for tiny, small revenue margins. And they're taking away Mm. the control. And whatever the quiet, the finance comes from, if you are a chief executive Thanks for that challenge in return. That's great. Um, here, here in the front, and then I'll come to you behind. Thank you. Uh, Joe Dilgham, Governor's Manager of a health charity in the city, but it's really in terms of uh, education, uh, outside work. I chair a small multi-academy group. I used to be head of governance for an academy group uh, professionally at Oasis. I, I think, I mean, for, for me, it's a kind of fairly obvious point in terms of uh, the public sector to choose its contracting partners well. Um, and there may not be a a clear view in terms of the size, just very briefly, Oasis, when I worked for them, and it grew from three to 12 academies, and it's now 47 academies, but I think it it also links into the quality of the leadership as well, and that was a very kind of strong, clear, values-based leadership, and I think the the large academy groups, they're not perfect, but in, in, in some ways, they, they offer opportunities um, which are very, very important for staff development um, and, and leadership and switching between schools and so on and so forth. But I, I understand where the gentleman's coming from in terms of locally, because mm. my current academy group is just one, about to come two schools, mm. but very much rooted in its community in Haringey. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so choose your partner as well. The point is about leadership. Okay, great. Um, if we come, let's, t- let's take um, another one behind, um, just behind you, and then I'll come over here. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Ian Mulhern from Oxford Economics. Um, 
if we accept for a minute, I'm not sure all the panel do, but if we accept for a minute kind of Julian's idea that choice and competition is the thing that, you know, it might co be complemented by the kind of things that David's talking about, but if we accept that that's the kind of the best kind of system we're going to get, broadly speaking. That, that strikes me that there's a couple of concerns about that because I think funding is pretty key to that for two reasons. One is that to have any choice, you've got to have spare capacity. That's what happens in the market. You can't have a command and control, carefully allocated resources, and then have choice. That simply won't work. So, and the second thing seems to me to be that as well as devolving cuts through uh, devolution, you get devolving cuts through outsourcing as well. And in fact, I think that's what did for the welfare to work regime was that you had a system where, you know, th that became a, um, essentially government colluded in the prime contractors squeezing out the little guys by allowing them to pass on all the risk. Whereas that, there is nothing inherently wrong with that system if you design the contracts in a way which, which means they can't shift that risk onto the little guy. So that I, I personally think that they had to do it because there wasn't any money left in the system. So it seems in both of those things, capacity for choice and also making outsourcing work well, you need to have uh, a decent <coughs> amount of money. So does that mean that it might be the best system, but it's highly cyclical? And if that means that every 10 years we have to ditch it, should we just find a different <laughs> thing altogether? Julian, do you want to start with that one? I mean, look, that is a direct challenge to what you're arguing, which is saying, look, it wasn't just the wisdom of the managers at that time, but they were blessed with um, better budgets and national, national finances than what followed. Yes, I'm not wholly convinced by that. Um, the, um, you don't necessarily need excess capacity to make choice and competition work. Um, what you do need is a an ability, and the choice provides some mechanism for this, to, to use more effectively the capacity that you've got already. Um, the thing about, for example, um, the, the waiting times in the NHS, um, uh, and you've got hospitals, you've got a number of hospitals, what you have is hospitals, you had some hospitals um, with uh, substantial overcapacity in the, in the 2000s, in the early 2000s, in the, in the late 1990s. You had very short waiting lists, you had very long waiting lists in other areas. One of the effects of the... Uh, of the whole targets and terror regime and then the choice and competition was actually to equalize that capacity. Um, to sort of equalize the waiting times and so sort of, in other words, make a better use of existing capacity. So um, I don't wholly buy the argument that you need some kind of a massive degree of excess capacity in order to make choice and competition work. Well, I'll come back to that. I have a bit more sympathy for that because I think, I think one of the reasons it's fallen down the list is actually there's, not, there's, not, you know, there's much less money in the system. And so it becomes much harder to do. Uh, because you, because you, if, if you're really going to... Yeah, 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 yeah. If you're really going to change it, you need to take other... You know, for, for some new entrant to do really well, you've got to take something else out. And it's very difficult to take things out in the, okay. at, at scale. No. That's different, I think. Okay. Julian, you, uh, over, over here by the fireplace. Let's take two together. 
Yeah, sorry, Hi, I'm Sam Windet from URSA. I'm very excited that there's so much interest in the employment support sector in this discussion. So I just wanted, wanted to add in that um, actually if you look at what's come next, which is just rolling out at the moment, the Work and Health Programme, what that's doing is it has learnt the lessons from some of the Work Programme Work Choice model, but it's even more complex, trying to bring in even more innovation. Uh, and I think it'd be worth looking at whether that is a model because it's being co-commissioned in local areas too. So it's being done in a different way. I think my, my problem with this is it's for a very, very, very small section of job seekers. It's a tiny, tiny contract in comparison to what's gone before. So actually what we've got is a muddle of going back to Job Centre plus command control and trying to improve Job Centre, which is no bad thing. But actually, do employers trust Job Centre? Has that gone, that trust issue? Do job seekers trust Job Centre? Which then begs the question for a young person, you go and you see somebody like Prince's Trust who does peer mentoring and you go, that works. So job centres trying to bring it into job centre. Is that the right way to do it? Is it through the state or is there actually, is this, do we need to get to what works and actually is it the state that works? Do we need to compare state and other mechanisms? It seems a big muddle at the moment. Thank you very much for that. Uh, over here. Hello, Martin Williams. I'm a civil servant, um, head director of something called the Office of Manpower Economics, which deals with public sector pay. I just remark in passing, if you, Julian Legrand thinks that Ofsted criticism started in 2010, he obviously can't have been in any school at all. Um, it merely confirmed just how out of touch number 10 was. Um, all the years of Blair, I always thought it was, because I was working in schools at that time. But the... the and, Ofsted was just complete mud for the full 15 years. Uh, waste of time, bureaucracy, etc. Let that pass. The question is, <laughs> the, the question is though, coming from a different point of view, does one need to start, or are, is the next 10 to 15 years going to see a re redefinition of what a public service is? And we all talk about management, but when I, 30 years ago, you would have said that energy was a public service. Um, electric telephone, telephones were a public service. You know, government thought it was its responsibility. Now you wouldn't, not in the same way. I don't think my children think about what a public service is in the same way as I do. Do you think this is going to change? In a sense, you invert the whole thing. In a sense, what David's talking about is a world where the concept of a public service becomes, slightly, becomes a very mm. different sort of more individualistic thing. Mm. Really interesting question. Thank you. And in front of you. Um, Andrew, uh, could, 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 yeah. Andrew Taylor worked on these projects for 30 years. <laughs> Julian, I love the book, but I can't let you get away with the idea that the health service has gone bad because it departed from the best practice manual of Blair and Brown. In 20, before You're 20... I know, I, but in 2010, we believed that the economy was capable of growing at 2.5% a year. We now think it's capable of growing at 1.5% a year. By now, we were expecting the economy to be 2 trillion, say. It's now about 1.7. That means that 120 billion of tax revenue that we're not getting that prior to prior 2010 we thought we were getting. And that has had a huge impact on all these public services. Yeah. Then, then Nick, what was interesting, it's been a very UK-based discussion, but around the late 80s, the early 90s, you mentioned Osborne and Gabriel briefly, there was a kind of, amongst the Commonwealth... Um, Northern Europe, even Lombardy, I wouldn't say Italy, Lombardy, uh, and America below the federal level, a kind of consensus which is called new public management. And 
are they equally disenchanted or are they running into the same problems and are any because we were in the lead at that point are there any of them that are actually pointing to the direction that we might go in yeah. that's a really good question yeah. i don't know the answer um <laughs> but, it, but it's worth thinking about isn't it having a look at are you stopping there? Well, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know the answer to the question. I mean, I don't know the answer to the question. I mean, I, you know, I was, I was just, as, as you were asking it, I was trying to think, and I think I can't think, you know, whether... I can't think of enough examples. I mean, well, you can think of the odd example. So you could take, I mean, just one example, but, you know, New Zealand, for example, did our internal market in healthcare on speed over a period of about four years. They did exactly what... Conservative government did only much faster and abandoned it, and they're now back at something we would look at much more directly managed organisation. So they lost faith in that. I mean, they did it quicker, you know, they did it even further and faster and quicker than we did, and gave it up. But that's the one example I can think of off the top of my head, and they gave it up ages ago. Okay. Any points on the other? And it works quite well, actually. Interesting. Any points either on Andrew Turnbull's question or the other the other two? I, I thought Andrew's, I mean, they were both very telling points, but I thought the, the first point is also, uh, I'm afraid, the marker for the future, because if you look at the long-term economic trends and the long-term fiscal pressures as you shift to a society where uh, there's an underlying dynamic pushing up demand for public services because of the ageing of the population, and at the same time you're shifting to a lower growth rate, we've been badly hit by the crash and then Brexit, uh, the, the, the austerity is going to get steadily more intense. And if I may say so, I mean, look at the 20... The, the, one of the... For my party, the 27 manifesto, even more than the 2015 manifesto, the 2017 was manifesto, but on the first manifesto, where a Conservative party had tried to say, we don't actually have the money for tax cuts. In fact, to finance the, the public services you want, like social care, we're going to have to find someone else who's going to pay for it, such as affluent old people who own their own home, and it got a terrible raspberry. But the fact that a Conservative Party is no longer able to go into an election with the classic manifesto, here's how we're going to cut your taxes, and was instead going into a party with a manifesto with how we, here we're going to pay, how you guys are going to have to pay for the public services you need, that is, it was a, had a very poor electoral result for my party, but that is actually the future of elections. That is where we are heading, and it is just starting. I think it's, it's very... Significant. I suppose I might just uh, Andrew's Andrew's first point. Um, the NHS is permanently underfunded. It is always true that demand will be greater than supply, so long as we have a free national health service. And I assume that we we um, we always think we should have a free national health service. Um, the question is: Is there an, an inexorable rise in demand fueled by, e.g., the ageing population and so on? Um, is, is it impossible for that gap between supply and demand to, mean, to, to narrow? Um, now, I think what's happened in, in recent years um, is that I don't, as I've indicated before, I don't think demand has increased that, that massively, and certainly not massively enough to explain the difference. Um, I do would concede one point, though, that in terms of the cuts in social care, I think, have made a difference. And I think there is bed blocking going on, but maybe fairly substantial bed blocking going on, and that is a problem. That's a genuine problem. However, I don't believe that the fundamental, the fundamental problems of the NHS are due, are due to the adoption of a wrong way of running a public service. Virginia, I wanted to... 
Yes, um, I'm, I'm going to try and squeeze in three, three more. I'm, I'm sorry, your question has not been answered, and I suggest you come and grab them uh, afterwards and uh, shake, them, shake them up a bit. Um, partly uh, a question. Virginia, and then over here, and then there's one right at the back, and we're going to have to stop there. I'm very partly close. a question, partly a comment. I mean, looking at what's happened over 30 years, there was no real sort of ownership of price and cost in many of our public services, and there has been a much greater sense of opportunity cost, cost. When doctors wrote a prescription, they never thought it had a cost attached. There were lots of perverse incentives. A GP could send everybody to hospital. Got them, they could have a huge great number on their list. Got rid of them all to hospital. Patient happy, hospital paid. I mean, there were all sorts of ways in which there were perverse incentives. And I think whether schools and hospitals and all sorts, there's much greater sort of ownership of how to use money wisely and well. I like the non-profit models. We haven't talked about housing associations, but there's confidence in housing associations. I think universities are a good model. They have a large degree of autonomy. They've been frightful crybabies about their salaries recently. As a deeply wounded, anybody should dare criticize them about how much they earn. Um, uh, well, get into the real world, people are always criticizing. Um, I do think there's a pressure that, the, instead of a very patronizing, paternalistic attitude towards users of free services, now a lot of professionals are really beleaguered and battered by consumers who are empowered and demanding and relentless. And so a lot of those people in public services, instead of feeling respected and appreciated and thanked, they feel beaten up by their patients and beaten up by their, their bosses. Just quickly on this big saga of social care, a lot of the world seems to think that when Beveridge wrote his report, social care was free. Social care has never been free. And this was the Griffith point. The Griffith said, we expect healthcare is expected to be free at the point of need. Social care is an assessment of means. And people seem blinkered about this in the most extraordinary way. But the reason that I supported uh, care, community care was simply that Care for old people was free and means-tested, means-tested, but through the social security system. So it would pay for an old person's place, but it wouldn't pay for care, domiciliary care. So it was a more rational way of getting cost-effective care to people in need of it, instead of the only option being to put them into an institution. But of course, what has happened is this squeezing of local governments, and I well remember the uh, economic advisor at the Department of Health saying that the increase in funding for social care is greater than the future increase in funding for health care. And our hospitals send people out of hospital when they're just under an anaesthetic. Last point, are, they, are all these public services the same? I mean, you're trying to get intellectual coherence across them, but maybe actually some of them are really quite different to the others. Thank, I am but a student. I'm going to take that as a point, an excellent point, um, but, but not a question. Right. Uh, on the aisle here, and I'm going to have to go home. Yeah, I'm really sorry. Yeah, on the aisle. Uh, Richard Johnson from Civil Service World. I wanted to get uh, ask the panel about what you think of the skills of Whitehall through this period that we've been discussing to kind of run services rather than commission them. I think there's right. evidence of a good sort of crisis response to Carillion, to East Coast, to Hinchinbrook, say. But what would change if a large set of services were taken back in-house on a, on a large scale? Uh, I'm not sure whether you selected me. I, I have given, selected you. Um, given yeah, the yeah. mic, so um, uh, good evening. I'm Adam Sharples. It seems to me that one thing that's been rather missing from the discussion this evening is that 
Public services are essentially people businesses, and the quality of the service depends critically on the quality of the staff, uh, their sense of professionalism. I was delighted when Nick talked about harnessing the professional pride of uh, the people delivering the services. But they're also people businesses in the sense that the common theme right across the services is they're about interactions between deliverers and receivers of the service. The human interactions are critical, again, to the, the quality. So my question and challenge is whether the, uh, the doctrine of targets and terror um, I'm com completely buying into the idea there needs to be some accountability, but targets and terror has a real cost mm. in terms of demotivation okay. and driving people out of the, uh, the public services. Okay, um, last thoughts, everyone, on, on, on this, um, Virginia's point and the, and the two questions. Um, let me just chip in. I mean, I, I mean, I'm sitting here, there's something of a... Um, Feeling that this is, in a way, an odd discussion. There's many interesting points made, and yet we're talking about something that's got the kind of white-hot public anger behind it, and where you know much of the commentary is about how we're at a, a turning point, where all these experiments we've been discussing of the past 30 years actually maybe set set aside in a kind of shudder, and we're having you know, something of a uh, um, you know it, it, um, a technocratic discussion, if you like, in in ways that you know. I've, uh, deliberately been exploring, but I, I just like um, your reflections as well about whether, uh, of, of how we argue for the best uh, uh, of the last 30 years on this. All right, you've got uh, one about the civil service, you've got one about people, and you've got one about the politics. Okay. David. Uh, I don't think that the, the civil service machine, not because of the individuals, is capable of, of running large-scale uh, organization. It doesn't have the capacity, and it's quite, got quite a lot uh, else on its hands anyway. Um, I think also, uh, it, it, I, I agree with the point about the, the people, and let's face it, and we, there's, a, we haven't, there's a gender issue in some of this as well, and indeed the, the original Douglas J quote, as I remember it, also included, crucially, the statement, the housewives of England do not know what is best for their families. The gentleman was being contrasted with the housewife. Um, and the, uh, a lot of the people who have been providing these services in the context you described, and let's face it, were predominantly female, uh, and often take accepting lower pay than men were accepting, often the men in the private sector, wider opportunities opening up for the women, so retaining them in these crucial public service roles getting harder and harder. Um, my, my final comment, however, is I'm disappointed that my attempt to get the technology agenda onto the table has clearly failed, and we haven't really <laughs> followed up on that. But I do think that if I would, the two forces I think were shaped for this is, I, and I think even Andrew's question, there are parts of the world where now the technology has got very exciting. Individual Italian provinces, some of the states in Germany, uh, there is quite a race on as to who can make who can collect this data most efficiently and set it to use to raise the quality of public services um, and, a, and a lot of individual local innovation there. Of course, the irony is that San Francisco itself is a disaster area in terms of the quality of public services, so the very arrogant, big American tech giants haven't necessarily got the answer. And the other thing which we haven't talked about is lawyers and legal accountability. I think the consequence of the poor trust dissatisfaction which you are describing, Brownwin, is in the modern world, it ends up in the courts. 
So we're going to find many more legal challenges. Why isn't this service provided for me? Why was it inadequate? Um, so I would say legal challenge and technological opportunity are the two big that are going to be the forces driving things in the next 10 or 20 and, and public services, the sort we're describing, the dissatisfaction will not just be in the ballot box. People will be trying to sue. Uh, <clears throat> yes, just to pick up on two points that Virginia made, um, and uh, I would agree with her very, that actually there will be two legacies of the choice and competition model, even if it disappears entirely. One is our improvement in our ability to cost things. Um, and that's very important, uh, and has cre created enormous increases in efficiency. And the other is reduction in paternalism. That we've actually moved towards a less paternalistic system. Um, um, Renationalisation, I don't want to see, um, for the sort of reasons that David um, has been putting forward. Um, I rather agree with you about targets and terror, um, about um, uh, the demotivation consequences of it. Um, uh, and I think that at the end of the day, we one the chief lesson we've learned over the past 20, 30 years of public services reform is that public services won't reform on their own. They will need some outside pressure, and the tr and <coughs> the trick is to find the pressure that does the least damage. Targets and terror, I think, do quite a lot of damage in some ways. Very effective in some ways, a lot of damage. Choice and competition seems to me to be at the end of the day probably the le not necessarily the perfect system, but the, perhaps the least worst. And it's competition I would like to see, rather than between shareholder-owned corporations, but between something like a mutual or cooperative model. Oh, so on, the, on the targets and terror point, it's clearly a terrible way to run everything, if you see what I mean. But they do make a difference. I mean, matter of personal belief, but the, the, the waiting times in the NHS would not have come down without that target of 18 weeks being driven through. And I, think, I think in terms of the impact, it was much more... You know, the targets and terror had a much greater impact than choice and competition did on bringing that down. Um, and sometimes people can recognise targets are a good thing. I, mean, I, was, I was wondering, I was in an A&E department the other day looking at them doing their four-hour returns for the A and, and saying, what do you think of this target, which has been around for a long time now? And it was fascinating. They said, no, it's good. It's good. It's really good. Because if we didn't have it, it the, perform, the, the performance would be worse. And we all accept that four hours is a, you know, you wouldn't want to be in any department yourself for more than four hours, and yet it's a pain and it hurts like hell at times, but it's a good thing. So sometimes, they, sometimes you can have a target that gets internalised mm. and people say, actually, it's, a, it's, it's right to have this, even though it's, mm. it feels very mm. command and controlling and domineering. So mm. right. they can be good things. Okay, great. We're going to have to stop there. Um, thank you all for terrific questions. I'm sorry if you didn't get yours in or if... Um, You'd really like another go at it. And clearly we could go on. We could, uh, not least, uh, uh, David could have a chance to describe how we get from here to what he's describing. But we don't have any more time. Thank you for coming out on such a horrible evening. Please come next door for um, a drink and uh, a nibble if you've got time. And please join me in thanking our panel. Thank you. Thank you.